2: Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed.
0: Being England's first colony, Ireland has a long and deeply complicated relationship with empire. I spoke to historian Jane Olmire, who has written a new book on the subject, to learn more about this complex picture from why Ireland was a laboratory of empire to how imperialism influenced every facet of people's lives, down to the clothes on their backs. So your book focuses on early modern Ireland and its relationship with imperialism. What drew you to writing about this topic?
3: I've been fascinated by empire my entire life. I was born in Africa in a former uh, British colony that's now modern-day Zambia, And then I grew up in Northern Ireland and obviously empire looms large in an Irish context and particularly in Northern Ireland, because the Troubles was very much a colonial war and it was a civil war. And I I guess I was seven when I moved to Belfast and i that was my childhood. So I if you want I was living through some of the very real legacies of the impact of imperialism in Ireland and then when I went to university you know it was like an itch that kept scratching and I I, w- I was very interested in issues of empire uh you know the British empire but also other empires and why, you know, empires dominated the history of the world for two millennia. It was nation states where if you want the blip on the historical horizon. What are some of the complexities you found in researching this topic? Everything about empire is complex and the complexities are at multiple levels. The complexities obviously are at the time and the complexities are today and the complexities are around the archive. So, I think if we look at it quickly from those three perspectives, the complexities of the time were Ireland was England's first colony. And obviously the experience of colonisation was not pretty because it was underpinned by extreme violence. In other words, you know, the English conquerors brought violence to the conquest. Mass expropriation. So over the course of the 17th century alone, something like 8 million Irish acres were expropriated or or, or confiscated and then redistributed from Catholic to Protestant hands. And you have this nitty gritty of settler colonialism unfolding in Ireland. Now, the first conquest is in the 12th century, but it really gathers steam from the late 16th century uh, on. And that's where we see things like ideologies of colonialism and the othering of the Irish. Today, we would call it racism, but but obviously that is very much a, a product of a, of a later period. But that's effectively what's happening. Irish Catholics are treated as subhuman. So, so we're seeing all of this happen in early modern Ireland. And then we come to the context of today, where discussions around empire have become toxic in some places. I look particularly, you know, at the United States, the United Kingdom. So the question is, how can we have these conversations in a very measured way? We need to reflect on what empire means because you can't escape the past. You can't change it. But we really need to think about, well, what does it matter and how has it shaped us? So I I was very keen and I'm very aware of just the sheer complexities of the moment, but yet the fundamental importance of having very difficult sometimes conversations, but having them in a very uh, informed way and a, and a very respectful way as well. And then the final thing, the big, big challenge is of the archive itself, because winners write history. We all know that. And so it's very hard to recover the lived experiences and the voices of the colonized. And so, you know, these are challenges that obviously I was facing. And, you know, the English language narrative that is written down dominates. So, um, obviously I was very interested in, in looking where it survives in Irish language sources. But also then looking to material culture, looking at the landscape, uh, looking at architecture, looking to other disciplines, particularly literature for insights. And I try very hard in this book to, um, you know, really be as, as interdisciplinary as I can. But obviously I'm a very you know, empirically trained historian, but, but valuing hugely the insights um, that the archaeologists, the literary scholars, the feminist scholars bring to this conversation as well.
0: And you mentioned there that Ireland was England's first colony, and this is where I'd like to move the conversation on to next. What did imperialism and empire mean
3: for people at that time? Let's start in 1603. Even though English imperialism has a long history in Ireland, it obviously goes back to the 12th century, and particularly under the Tudors and Elizabeth I, we see a very significant, if you want, imperial westward expansionism that that included Ireland. It was the beginning, if you want, of that age of empire. But in 1603, we have a Stuart king, King James the Sixth and First, who becomes the ruler of all three kingdoms, and it's really during his reign that we see empire move up a level. And what I mean by empire is a desire to colonise Ireland more fully. And obviously it's during this period that we get the plantation of Ulster. And, you know, we're still living with the consequences of that. It's during this period that we see the intense commercialisation of Ireland, this desire to take Ireland and stop it being, if you want, an economic backwater and make it more like England. So we see a lot of urbanisation, the creation of fairs and markets, a desire to have the Irish use money rather than barter as the basis uh, of their economy. This is uh, an era in which we see, if you want, cultural imperialism really coming to the fore, a desire to make everything English. And it is English rather than British. So basically the Crown wants people in Ireland to speak the English language, wear English clothing, use the English legal system, have English agricultural practices because it is very much an agriculturally based economy. So you have this economic imperialism about using Irish land and labour to benefit England. You have cultural imperialism, and then you have just military might, this desire to conquer Ireland, because Ireland always represents a strategic threat to England, because it's that back door into England. And uh, we see this in 1588 with the Spanish Armada. You know, whoever wants to conquer England, let them in Ireland begin, and it's very much a backdoor. So, so from to protect England, Ireland also has to be conquered militarily, and that happens finally in sixteen o three on the death of Elizabeth and the accession of King James um, the Sixth and First. So, it's a very important moment. And then during the early decades of the seventeenth century, we have this period of intense colonization, commercialization, and cultivation. And then, of course, we have you know, a major rebellion that breaks out in Ireland that is basically a rejection of all of that... And that triggers a decade of independence uh, from uh, England and the and the Irish basically are ruling themselves as an independent country. And then Oliver Cromwell comes along in 1649 and unleashes uh, the new model army and reconquers Ireland. And with um, the reconquest of, of Ireland by Oliver Cromwell, we then see a new age of empire being ushered in where it really is about economic imperialism and making Ireland Basically, the basis for the expansion of the English Imperial Empire. So, eight million acres of Irish land are confiscated, expropriated. Much of that goes into feeding, if you want, the English Imperial venture. And then, of course, the use of Irish labour, both in Ireland uh, but across the English Empire. And that phase of imperialism then continues uh, uh, throughout the 17th century.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed.
2: Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
0: And we'll come on to the use of Irish labour a bit later in the conversation. But for now, how did the techniques and the strategies that were, some might say, refined in Ireland, how are these repackaged and used in other colonies across the world?
3: I argue in the book that Ireland is very much a laboratory for empire. So in other words, it's a great testing ground for what's going to work. And uh, obviously, uh, when it's translated into another environment, there will be changes. But the basic ideas are formulated in Ireland. Plantation itself is extremely carefully worked out in an Irish context because not just the Ulster Plantation, we've had the Munster Plantation, but many plantations in Ireland and there are many different types of plantation. The city of Derry is very much you know, modelled on the East India Company and what we later see in the Atlantic world uh, and in Asia. But it's also, if you want, ideologies of empire. and um, So ethnocentricity later becomes, if you want, racism is really worked out in an Irish context and exported around the Atlantic empire and then, of course, to Africa and to Asia as well in the later British empire. I think the other way that Ireland is very much a, a laboratory is when it comes to things like knowledge gathering. And particularly mapping, because before you expropriate, or, or uh, you have to know what you actually own, and so. Ireland is very extensively mapped in the early decades of the 17th century and particularly in the 1650s by a man called Sir William Petty who's also, if you want, the father of political arithmetic. And what Petty does in Ireland and the methodologies that he uh, develops, particularly cartographic ones and and the mapping that he does that of course then we see replicated elsewhere in the Atlantic English Empire and and then later in places like, like India. Petty is hugely, hugely important and significant. So I think that gives you a few sort of examples of how how Ireland is that, if you want colonial laboratory or or template uh, for the English Empire. But it's not just that, it's people, if you want the imperialists themselves who learn the business of imperialism in Ireland and then circulate around the English Empire. They may be people from England or Scotland, so somebody like Cornwallis is a good example, um, uh, but they may Maybe Irish people themselves who basically uh, learn the business of empire. And when I say Irish people themselves, it's like, what does it mean to be Irish at this point? Because when you've got colonists coming in, they'll retain a strong sense of Englishness. However, the English don't regard them as English. The English regard them as Irish. So, I mean, identity gets very messy and complicated in this period. But what we see are, if you want, Protestants who were born in Ireland are very effective Agents of empire, but so are Catholics. And I think this is very important that we remember when it comes to the business of empire, Irish Protestants and Catholics are extremely active in the English Empire, but of course, in the empires of of France and Spain, Portugal uh, and the other European powers as well.
0: And can you share some examples of some of these agents of empire and
3: in the ways that they profited? So agents of empire, there are many, many examples, but let's just focus for a moment. Let's, let's do India. And I'd like to say something about the Caribbean particularly as well, but, but also North America. So the founding father of Bombay is a man called Gerald Anger. Gerald Anger was a younger son and he goes off in the East India Company and uh, he's basically stationed in Surat, which is where the East India Company is is based. And we're now talking the 1660s. And he uh, is very successful. He becomes the president of Surat. And then when Charles II uh, gets Bombay as part of his diary, um, when he marries Catherine of Braganza, he hands it over to the East India Company and says, listen, lads, you run this for me. Anyway, Gerald Danger moves in. And uh, he basically colonises Bombay as his grandfathers, who've been very much, if you want, agents of colonisation in Ireland itself in the 1630s. So we see a replication of, if you want, the techniques of imperialism being recycled in an Indian context. But Ainger is also very good at his job in terms of making money. So this is an era where it's obviously about spices, it's about coffee, but it's also about textile and you have something called the calico craze. And Gerald Anger would be the man who's really responsible for this surge in Indian calicos coming to these islands. So he makes a fortune. So with that fortune, he uh, remits that to his brother, who is a property developer in Dublin, a man called the Earl of Longford. And the Earl of Longford uses this Indian capital to fund the expansion of a new suburb in Dublin, which is all up around Dublin Castle. And today it's Dame Street and Ainger Street, named, of course, after Gerald Ainger. So we see this cycling of wealth from India back to Ireland and the landscape being transformed in an Irish context. So Ainger is a good example, if you want, of an Irish man, second, third-generation Irish, Protestant, who goes off to India and then the wealth comes back to Ireland. But if we look maybe for a moment at an example of a Catholic agent of empire, a man called Antoine Walsh, who is based in Nantes, uh, uh, one of the French Atlantic slave ports. And he is the son of a Dublin merchant who has uh, moved to France And uh, he becomes the most important slave trader, Irish slave trader, operating in the French Atlantic. Tens of thousands of enslaved people are transplanted by Walsh from West Africa to the French uh, Caribbean. And he makes an absolute fortune, and then he reinvests that in his own plantations in the French Caribbean. And we see this time and again of Irish Catholics who will travel out to the Caribbean, sometimes as merchants, more often as indentured servants. The majority of them, of course, remain impoverished, but the odd few will actually be able to become slave owners themselves and develop very, very successful uh, plantations they will retain their Catholicism. In other words, they remain Irish Catholics. And it's very interesting to see how they dial up their commitment to Catholicism, depending on who they're talking to, because obviously the Caribbean was very much a Spanish lake, so when they're talking to the Spaniards they'll dial up their Catholicism, when they're talking uh, to the English they dial it down. But they, they're they very uh, pragmatic in in how they operate and you have somebody quite, you know, like Nicholas Chute or the Blakes from Galway or William Stapleton from, from Tipperary, who are all Irish Catholics who, who do extraordinarily well uh, in the Caribbean Caribbean, There are very large numbers of Irish indentured servants uh, in the Caribbean. So from the 1620s, the Irish are going out in their tens of thousands. And then, of course, during the 1650s, Oliver Cromwell transplants large numbers of Irish Catholics, mostly vagrants, orphans from Ireland, particularly to, to Jamaica. So you know, they're a very significant part of the white population. Their labour is essential for the production of first tobacco, then sugar and then what happens over time is the black enslaved population replaces them as the primary labour force. But to begin with, it's very much Irish labour. So the Caribbean is hugely important for Ireland. So, of course, are the uh, American colonies. And I'll sort of move in terms of the Atlantic, where we see large numbers of Irish indentured servants are in the Chesapeake region. Uh, So, Maryland is established by a man, the Talbot family. And the Talbots are actually English Catholics who have major estates in Wexford. So they've begun their careers, if you want, as colonists in Ireland. They then go over first to Newfoundland and then to Maryland, where uh, Baltimore is established and Maryland is established as a Catholic state. And they attract then large numbers of Irish Catholics to Maryland. But we also see uh, Irish Catholics across the English colonies, as well as Irish Protestants going including Sir William Penn, who, of course, founds Pennsylvania. He's a Quaker from Munster who goes out and works very closely with Sir William Petty as he is designing Pennsylvania. So again, if you want, the imprint of Ireland it is all over these early American uh, colonies. One of the only Catholic Irish-born governor of New York was a man called Dungan, Thomas Dungan. And he is famous because he had something called Dungan's Charter, which was basically saying, you know, we shouldn't be paying tax without representation. So he was a very early Hamilton type figure, but again, would have been approaching New York and the governorship of New York very much through the lens of of Ireland. And these very early Irish governors and people who settled in the English Atlantic are almost always dialed out or they're, we're told they're British at a time when actually Britishness meant nothing. uh, And these people were firmly from Ireland. They would never have called themselves British. So I hope that gives you a bit of a flavor of 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 the types of people that are going out. One size doesn't fit all here. And I think that's the other thing to remember. It's a very complicated uh, matrix of people from Ireland that are leaving. And I suppose the final point to make is the importance of continental Europe. In other words, more Irish people from Ireland go to continental Europe, especially Irish Catholics in this period, then cross the Atlantic. But by the late into the 18th century, that that does shift. And the ones who are going to Catholic Europe are going to fight in the armies of Spain and France, largely. They're going to attend one of the many Irish colleges on the continent, or they're going as, as merchants. And from there, many of them will then become active in the uh, empires of Spain or Portugal or France. So it's an, an era where we see a tremendous diaspora from Ireland. Much of it driven by you know political exile or economic exile. In other words, the British really are trying to clear uh, Ireland of Irish Catholics, particularly as swordsmen. So I mean, it's it, it's it's not one. Some people go because they want opportunity or or they want to seek a, a fortune, but many are really driven out or economic necessity uh, drives them out.
0: Mm, so you've mentioned that this is a very complex topic and drilling down a bit deeper into some of that complexity, how did people at the time square ideals of Irish nationalism or rebellion resistance with the fact that they themselves were helping the system of empire to spread and profiting, say, from creating plantations
3: or owning a slave? You know, that's a lovely question. In other words, uh, how do you square that circle? And the answer is uh, people are intensely pragmatic and I think a lot of people are not doing things for ideological reasons. They're doing things because of economic necessity. I would say that's probably the vast majority of, of people. People are very pragmatic about how they invoke Catholicism. And I don't think you can see this as a Green Atlantic or a... I mean, there. what happens... After the famine is very different to what's going on in this period, and it's much more bottom-up driven by necessity as much as by anything else. However, I would say that people do have a strong sense of Irishness, and we see this reflected in the fact that people continue to speak the Irish language. So you have this wonderful community of Irish colonists, and they call themselves colonists, operating in the Amazon. So some of the earliest Irish entrepreneurs are actually trading tobacco and timber in the Amazon, modern-day Brazil, and they speak Irish to themselves. Uh, They use it as a secret language. We see this in Tangier, where you would have a very large... So Tangier, a bit like Bombay, has passed to Charles II as part of his diary when he marries Catherine of Braganza. And Tangier, the army in Tangier is basically made out of Irishmen. It's, it's known as a failed Irish colony because there are so many Irish Catholics in Tangier. And what, Irish is widely spoken. And again, they're using it as an Irish language, but it's also a badge of identity along with Catholicism. And I've always been struck t- at the extent to which the Irish are not afraid to practice their Catholicism. And I think that's very interesting. But you go to somewhere like Bombay, go back to our friend Gerald Anger, you have religious toleration there because it's not just Catholics and Protestants. You've got Muslims, you've got Jains, you've got Hindus. You know, it's a very... So so religious toleration is something that's very accepted, certainly in early modern India. But I think it's much more accepted in the early modern Atlantic than, than we give it credit for. And so that makes it easier, if you want, for the Irish to be Catholic, to be Irish. Uh, but also to remain loyal to the crown, because many of them actually are, in addition, in a sense to being Irish, are, are very loyal supporters, particularly of the Stuarts. You see them being um, great supporters. Now, obviously, they've got a problem after James II goes and William the, uh, uh, the Third of Orange comes in because that does produce, you know, that, that's where it starts to get difficult. But in the earlier period, they just seem to negotiate this actually very pragmatically.
0: You've mentioned identity a few times so far in our conversation, and this is really where I'd like to take our interview next. How would you say that people around the world viewed the Irish in this period?
3: Oh, people around the early modern world viewed the Irish with contempt. Now... When I say people around doing it, I mean in terms of the English-speaking world. And that comes out of this very hostile anti-Irish rhetoric that begins with Gerald of Wales, who, who wrote a book called Comprehensis Versus*, And that book was written in the 12th century, but it was then taken up by um, famous, a famous poet called Edmund Spencer, a great Renaissance poet, who along with other English commentators portrayed uh, the Irish in a very negative way and basically vilified them as being barbaric, uncivil, uncouth. Their women were sexually promiscuous and politically subversive. So, I mean, there's this very anti Catholic rhetoric that we see then being replicated wherever the Irish go, you know, whether it's in India or the Atlantic world. And it's not just directed at the Catholics of Ireland. Increasingly, it's also directed at the Protestants of Ireland. Of course, they hate that because they see themselves as English. In terms of the European powers, it is different. So, for example, France or Spain uh, treat the Irish very differently and see them as fellow Catholics. And they love the fact that, you know, they can uh, rebel against the English. So that's a plus. And so you find that actually the Irish do very well when they go to France and Spain and they'll enter into the armies, the navies, the administration of France and Spain and and excel. And and then, of course, they patronise their fellow countrymen and a country like Cuba, which would have been a Spanish colony, if you go there, you know, it's full of O'Dailies and O'Reilly's and, you know, all of these people that are obviously of Irish extraction that played a hugely important part in developing Cuba for Spain. So it depends on our perspective and the country whose eyes we're looking uh, through
0: And would it be fair for us then to compare these perceptions of the Irish people to perceptions of other colonised people around the world at this time?
3: Yes. So the Irish are regarded as, if you want, barbaric, subhuman, uncivil, as of course are the indigenous populations of the Americas. And you see those explicit comparisons. Interestingly, you do not see that in early modern India. Uh, So Gerald Ainger does not compare the Muslims with whom he trades or the Parsis or the Hindus that he operates with in this very negative pejorative way on the contrary, he has a, a deep respect for their cultures, their languages, and, and and actively goes out to learn more about it. But in the Atlantic world, it's being replicated, but, but not... Now, that comes later in India, and so by the 19th century, obviously, we see this comparison. And this is something that Irish nationalists pick up on, and somebody like Eamon de Valera... Uh, who would be one of the founding fathers of the modern Irish state, very actively makes common cause with the Indian nationalists and and saying, you know, India's cause is Ireland's cause. So the timeline is is, is slightly different, but it it does come later.
0: Mm -hmm. And as we draw towards the end of the interview, before we touch on the legacy of this, I wanted to ask you quite a broad question. What would you say is the biggest impact that empire has
3: on early modern Ireland? Oh, It changed the face of early modern Ireland. I mean, it's huge, absolutely huge. The fact that the Irish predominantly speak English, you know, Ireland was very, 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 very thoroughly anglicised. And it was in the 1890s that the cultural nationalists said we want to de-anglicise Ireland, you know very difficult to do after centuries. It changed so much uh, about uh, the landscape. There was extensive deforestation, uh, extensive urbanisation, but it also profoundly impacted on who we are as a people. And I think um, that experience of colonialism made the Irish, in some ways, it forced them to uh, engage with hardship in a very, uh, pragmatic way, the entrepreneurialism. I mean, you know, they had to make the best in the most adverse of of, of circumstances. So, you know, I think it's had some very interesting, you know, long term consequences for Ireland. But of course, the Republic of Ireland is post colonial, but you know, Northern Ireland is, is still arguably colonial. And uh, Ireland may have been England's first colony, but Northern Ireland could be its last. So imperialism is still a very much something that we are living with and we continue to live with uh, in Northern Ireland. So it's been hugely significant and profound for Ireland. I think when it comes to the legacy, what I, in terms of me, I think we as people, you know, from Ireland, um As an Irish person, it's just this awareness of just how significant empires have been for us, how they have shaped us. And how, at this moment, when empire is such a toxic topic, we are able now to have conversations about it, difficult ones, in a very respectful way. I think that's really important for us, especially in how we engage with the future. You know, we can't deny it anymore. We can't pretend it didn't happen. We need to acknowledge it as a part of moving on.
0: And thinking then about these conversations around empire, which, as you've mentioned, can be difficult. What can looking at this topic through the prism of Ireland, what can that reveal us that other studies can't?
3: I think just what it tells us about Ireland itself is important, how Ireland, if you want, shaped other empires. So I would be arguing that Ireland made the British Empire. (laughs) Uh, Certainly the first English Empire, Irish land and labour, you know, really was a key driver uh, in it. It complicates the narrative, if you want. And I think it complicates the The narrative of the coloniser. And maybe it will help the English look at fresh eyes about, well, what does imperialism mean for us, uh, given the importance of the Irish contribution uh, to that imperial venture? And of course, the Scottish and and Welsh contribution as well, though my focus has been very much Ireland. I I would acknowledge just how important Scotland and to a lesser extent Wales have, have been too. We're trying to get away from that you know very anglocentric narrative and trying to just complicate the conversation I think in a healthy way.
0: That was Jane Olmeyer, Erasmus Smith's professor of modern history at Trinity College Dublin. Her new book, Making Empire, Ireland, Imperialism and the Early Modern World, was published by Oxford University Press in 2023. Thanks for listening to the History Extra Podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green.